Welcome back to Content Lab, the podcast for all things content marketing. I'm John Becker, Revenue and Features Editor here at Impact and joined as always by Liz Moorhead, Editor-in-Chief. Hello. How are you, Liz? I'm good. I had, I'm having one of those days where I'm very much looking forward to lunch and then lunchtime passes without me noticing. And so I'm frantically like going downstairs. It was right before we were supposed to hop on to record. And I'm like, oh, I've got some time because I decided to vacuum on my way down because now I'm somebody who arbitrarily vacuums. Um, Get downstairs. I'm like, oh, I've got plenty of time to like throw something in the microwave. And it's like, I look at the clock. Oh, I'm supposed to be hopping out with John. Uh, Tortilla, turkey, mayo, roll, 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 run, run, run. (laughs) So it's just, it's a good day though. Have you ever had days where you know you're checking things off your to-do list, things that matter, things that are important. But because there isn't this overarching sense of urgency, you somehow feel like you're still not being productive. Like you feel like you're cheating. I don't know. That's my day. I do know that feeling. And and you and I have talked about this before. I I love closing tabs on Chrome. You know, that that's like the, it, it just, it scratches the itch in that regard. So if I finish something and that's a Google doc, I can close. It's a, it's a message I can close. It's a, it's a, whatever it is. And if I get to the end of the week and my windows are not just like a a library of, of tabs, I'm in a good spot because when they are, I feel like you're feeling, I think like I'm making progress, but nothing to show for it. How do you combat that feeling though? Because it's one of those things where it's like, so being completely transparent, we're recording this on a Friday. It's going to go out next Thursday, but I want to end the week. Like, yeah, I did this. I'm a boss. I'm amazing. And I'm going to think I'm going to end today inputting revenue forecasts and like a few metrics. And like, I even wrote a whole article this morning. I spent the first two and a half hours writing and publishing an article for impact going into what we're going to be talking about today. And even still, I'm like, eh, like Janet Jackson, that song, I know what you did for me then, but what have you done for me lately? I feel like I'm asking myself that right now. But, it, is, it is tough. You know, I, I think it feels really nice to actually check things off. And sometimes even if you don't get through those big things, even those small things allow you to approach those big things on Monday with more freshness and, and vigor. So I'm totally with you. I will, again, to, to be totally transparent, we're recording this on Friday afternoon and I like to produce content lab to do the audio mixing and get it mm-hmm. back to Liz. And I'm not gonna be able to do that before the, before the weekend because my rest of my afternoon is spoken for working on this other article from Marcus Sheridan and uh, it is what it is. Oh yeah, it is what it is. Isn't this but, just an inspiring way to kick off this episode? How's it going? I feel really unproductive. My life is meaningless. Let's talk about content. Let's get excited. Wow, I wish everybody else could see this right now. I mean, Nugget's clearly excited. My my pug mix, she's going mm. bonkers. But yeah, let's you dive into it. What are we talking love, about today? Loves content. Um, so we're talking today about something that feels maybe a little bit peripheral, but it shouldn't. Because we talk about all manner of content, usually written content and usually blog posts, but not just that. We talk about video content. We talk about interviewing, editing, um, social media, all, all sorts of different ways that 
you could envision content. But that content is not valuable unless it can be found. And in order for it to be found, it needs to be recognized and indexable by our kindly overlords in Silicon Valley, Google. Our robot overlords need to find our content worthy enough. Like we, it's just what you said, John, right? Like we, we go to work, we create the content that answers our ideal buyer's most pressing questions. But if you write a blog post and it falls in a forest and Google isn't there to map it, will your ideal buyers ever see it? The answer is no. no. Is Google good to know that we're talking about them? Are they, are they okay with this? Have we approved this? I have recently switched from being an Alexa household to being a Google household. Oh. So Google is definitely listening. So if for some reason... Um, my lights start going on and off or my nest thermostat starts jumping to like 90 degrees. I think we'll know we've hit a sore spot, but I think for right now, let's keep it under the radar. Let's do it. Let's continue. So I think a lot of people who produce content are intimidated by actually talking about algorithm updates, core updates, things, changes that Google announces that might feel, I don't know, Again, intimidating. They might feel like, well, I don't, I don't totally get that. I'm just going to keep writing content, doing the best I can, going after keywords, and I'm not going to concern myself with all of the, you know, sort of legal mumbo. Did your lights just literally flicker? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. They literally flicker. <laughs> okay, so you know sorry, what, Google, Google? We'll speak in more. protest. It's happening. Yeah. Um, so, but that that's I think not the right way to go about it, and. Liz, we were talking about this right before we were we were we started recording. It's not as scary as you think. It's not as intimidating as you think. You can kind of dive in and take some important insights from what Google puts out there, from the oh, yeah. updates that they announce, from the interviews that they give, and that's our topic today. Yeah, and I want to start this conversation by saying, if any of you are out there who see all those search engine journal, SEO roundtable, all of these articles were like, it feels like, were you like terrified? You're, well, it's a weird thing. You're first it panicked, but then you read it and you're like, should I not be panicked? Google says I shouldn't be panicked, but everybody keeps talking about these things. There's like a core update. They don't tell you what's in it, but like, it may hurt you, it may not hurt you. It may do something, it may not do something. Uh, the third party cookie ban, it, it, that's a huge thing where, Everybody's like, so third-party cookies, everybody's saying everything's on fire. You don't even know if you're supposed to be worried about it. Like, that's the thing that's frustrating about all of this information, right? Is that there are these countless articles that are churned out every single day about core updates, page experience updates, wonky terms like core web vitals, and, uh, you know, all of these little things, like third-party cookies, what are they? Who has them? Because not all cookies are third-party cookies. So are you even impacted by it? I remember I spent years just basically feeling traumatized and personally victimized, not just by Google, but also by the people who wrote about it. Because the thing that infuriated me the most is when I started reading these articles is it felt like it was SEO experts writing to other SEO experts about things that weren't really teaching me anything. And it probably doesn't help the fact that every time Google releases an update, one person will say 
oh yeah, don't worry, no substantial shifts. And then literally someone a week later from Google will be like, so some may see substantial shifts because of reasons. Or sometimes one person will say, oh no, 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 this is not a big deal. One year later, well, actually, yeah, this is kind of big deal. So it's just like, it's this inundation of information that I don't think anybody knows what to do with. Um, and then I had to start writing about it and it became a little less scary. I don't know. I think people are, you know, we don't want to like chase the updates. You know, there, there are things that, that, that come out from Google that you should start doing, or you should be more aware of, or you should double check. Um, but there is also, there can sometimes be an irrational fear where it's like, oh, well now Google is saying this, so I need to completely change everything I've ever learned about SEO and writing. And that's that's rarely the case. This is this is about making tweaks to make your site better and faster and provide a better experience to your visitors. Um, and if you if you know what's coming, you could do your job better. That that's that's the biggest that's the biggest thing here. If you know what's what's coming, you could do your job better and it's not as intimidating as it seems. I think also you bring up a really good point there, John. And this cuts to the heart of what we're really talking about today is and, and the, the questions that we're trying to answer, right? What updates should you be paying attention to? How do you contextualize all of these in the weed stories? And are they actually even relevant to you? Like if you're a business leader or a digital marketer, uh, for instance, I published an article today, I'll link it in the show notes that um, John Mueller, who works for Google, he does office hours, quote unquote, which are Google Hangouts where people can come and ask him questions. And one of the questions that was asked uh, earlier this week, I believe, was having too many internal links in your content, is that a problem? And his response was very wonky that it was like this meandering set of two paragraphs where essentially at the end of the day, he went, well, when you have too many internal links, it can be very confusing for Google to understand what your site structure is. How on earth is that relevant? Or like, how can any like run of the mill, and I don't mean run of the mill, like not smart. I mean, like you're a business leader, right? You're a small to medium-sized business leader, or you are a digital marketer working at a small to medium-sized business. How on earth are you supposed to understand that that information is actually relevant to you? Or when they roll out these countless core updates and they don't tell you what's in them, how are you supposed to contextualize that or understand that? And on top of that, to, to add further complexity, he didn't specify what too many links is. No, he did first not. Of all, first of all. And second of all, yes, Google rolls out core updates, these big updates every few months, but they also make like a thousand updates to their algorithm each year, mm -hmm. you know, multiple updates each week. So there are some that might affect a, a small niche or an individual industry or, or a certain country or region. Uh, there are so many updates and, you know, if we kind of close our eyes and put our fingers in our ear and hope that it's all going to blow over, we're not, we're not really doing our job. We have to kind of, we have to learn. We have to learn. And that's, that's the point here today. I think my other favorite part too, just to throw this out there is, and, and this is speaking to core updates specifically. One of the things you're always going to see Google say is that we roll out these updates all the time. They even wrote a whole article about it. The last time they did this, uh, which was in June, because by the way, they tried to tell us, by the way, everything is business as usual, but 
in a move that is very unprecedented, we're splitting up the core update in two because not everything was ready. You may see your, your site visits go up and down and then reverse itself once July rolls out. But we're not going to tell you what's in it, and it's really not a big deal. But here is the thing that I find fascinating about it. Do you know who they said the only people who really notice these updates are? And this is why it matters to this audience that we're speaking to. Really only people who care about SEO and use it to drive traffic to their website are the people who will notice the differences. And it's like this little throwaway line. I'm like, wait a minute. So let me get this straight. The people who care the most are the people who are going to notice, but you're telling everybody not to worry about it. Anyway. Only, only people with websites need to worry about this. Only with people with only websites businesses, who are doing content yeah. marketing. Yeah. It, Don't worry. <laughs> anyway, okay. Yeah. So the point of today is to unpack a few things that have come out or been announced or rolled out recently. You've covered all of these um, on our impact blog. So I'm sure you'll link to yes. everything that we're talking about in, in our show notes. So if you want to go there, well, that is the place to go for more depth. Today, because of because this is a podcast, we're going to talk our way through some of them. Um, obviously, we're not going to reach the depth that that you provide in the actual pieces. You so will please... always bring me in from Ward Waterfalling like you always do. So please, if you're if you're listening and want to learn more, click and um, and dive in. And you can always reach out to us if you if you want. Yeah. So essentially the news that we're going to talk about today to set the stage have to do with two types of things that Google is doing. And the thing to keep in mind with all of the news bits that we're going to talk about, because we're going to talk about a bunch of things, right? We're talking about the page experience update, the core updates, the third party cookie ban, and like, that's pretty much it. And those all seem like disparate. They're not really connected, but anything that Google really does and what it, the trends that I've noticed have to do with two main goals. They are trying to improve their product. And by say, when I say product, I mean like search ads, any of those things that they use to help surface your content to your ideal buyers, anything to improve that product. So it better understands the intent of the searcher and gives them more relevant answers faster in search results. So that's one bucket of news. The other bucket is privacy. So those are really the two big bugaboos that all news that you ever get out of Google will always fall under. They're either trying to improve the results that they're serving to people by better understanding their intent, what they're really looking for, and making sure that the results that come up at the top are the most interesting, most relevant, the things that really answer those questions. And then the other piece of it is something they actually have called the Privacy Sandbox Initiative. But bottom line, what they're trying to do is create a web experience that is open and prioritizes the privacy of the people who are surfing the web. So their information and data isn't harvested too much by uh, advertisers and marketers. So that's like the high level. So let's take those in the opposite order. So I want to start with privacy because there's been a lot of news over the last, I don't know, months about a third-party cookie ban that Google has since announced that they're going to kind of push back when that's being when that's being implemented. Yeah. So can you talk about what that what that means and what the announcement means? Sure, absolutely. So cookie, cookies aren't just a delicious snack. Cookies are used by marketers, advertisers, and business website owners 
to create a better experience for the people who are either interfacing with their ads on different websites or to create a better, more personalized user experience on the website. So a great example might be if you use HubSpot, for example, to either host your marketing automation and sales automation, or maybe you even have your website on there. Things like smart CTAs that rotate out based on whether or not somebody's already converted. Um, you know, uh, website personalization, calls to action, lead tracking, understanding what people are doing on your website after they convert on your forms. That's all handled by cookies. And if you are an advertiser, so say, you know how like you'll go on Facebook and then you'll get stalked by old Navy sweaters that you looked at like a week ago and then you end up buying them because they don't stop talk stalking you. I may be speaking from personal experience that is tracked by a cookie. Um, if they continue to follow you to other websites, that those are cookies as well. So what's the difference between a third party cookie and other kinds? So that's what I was getting to. The problem with this story is that everybody's like, oh my God, all cookies are third party cookies. Not true. There are two types of cookies, first party and third party. Third party cookies are the things that are really geared more toward advertisers, right? So if you have a bunch of ads that you're serving, you have little cookies that follow people across the web. So that way, if they go on a, an ad, like a, a, an e-commerce website, they look at a thing, remember they shouldn't buy the thing, then leave and go read something on the New York Times or another website, that little product is gonna follow them everywhere they go around the web, right? Or it's gonna base it on their different experiences or different things that they're looking at. Those are generally speaking, third-party cookies. Third-party cookies are cookies that are hosted not by the website. So a good way to think about it is the inverse. HubSpot, for example, is not impacted by this at all. HubSpot are first party cookies because all of the cookies are hosted on the website you're visiting. And that's the key difference. The key difference here is that first, cookie, first party cookies are actually stuff that for the most part, privacy advocates and, and Google, they, they like that. That is really geared toward making a better, more a personalized experience on somebody's website where things get trickier first part or third party cookies. And the reason why is this, most people do not realize how much data and personal information about their behavior, those little suckers are harvesting from you. Now, if we take a step back and we say, okay, now we understand what those things are. The challenge is that no, most people don't know the difference. So they see these things where everyone's just like, Oh my God, third-party cookies, it's Armageddon, yada, yada, yada. And for some people, it kind of is. Like think about the New York Times of the world, these big digital publishers. They rely on advertising revenue dollars in order to keep their digital lights on, right? But if those advertising, if those advertising mechanisms become less effective, that's a huge problem, not just for the publisher, but also for the people buying the ads. So we're now almost in this like digital arms race for people who are struggling specifically with third-party cookies to figure out what those replacements are going to be. Because Google has flat out said, there may be a chance that some of these replacements are never going to give you the data that you had with third-party cookies. And that's the way it should be. But the thing that people should also take comfort in is number one, you even shared a story about this recently about how I think it's Verizon Media has found a first party cookie uh, tracking replacement 
for what they were doing with third-party cookies for their own advertising, right? So we're in this interesting incubator of innovation that Google also has to figure out. Google also uses third-party cookies. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, there are like broader implications where people are like, well, Google and Apple and all of these other people, they're just trying to like get more market control, right? But like, that's, that's a whole other thing. But that's the bottom line of the story. So obviously, as you're saying, this is a huge, a huge issue that that has tons of implications for for privacy, for marketing, for legality. There are a lot of avenues that we could explore, but ultimately, Google pushed back a an implementation date that they thought they were going to say that that they're going to yes. bar third party cookies by X, and now they've pushed it to when? a year from now. So originally, it was going to be. Uh, sometime in 2022. Now it's going to be rolling out, I believe sometime in mid 2023. And it's all about regulators, right? Like, so it's not just publishers and businesses and Google themselves who are impacted by this. Regulators are also in there trying to figure out like, so how are we going to make sure that there are replacements in place? Because this is the kind of thing, this is where we start getting into that larger conversation, right? Google, a private business, has made a decision based on their priorities about data privacy and what users should and should not be entitled to as a right when it comes to their own privacy surfing online. I happen to agree with a lot of these things, but the reality is, is that's what it is. It is a private company making a decision that has implications for businesses and how they generate revenue for their company around the world. Millions of businesses are impacted by this. And it's, it's so interesting because there's way less clarity legally than most people might think, because there are different privacy laws in different states. Obviously, the California Consumer Privacy Act that went live in the beginning of 2020 was, was a big one. But Virginia had one, too, that went out earlier this year. It's just this is going to continue to happen. But it's, it's a tremendous patchwork that is there's no clear jurisdictional oversight. So like if you are, if you live in California, but you're in on vacation in Arizona and you're accessing a website from a company that's in Maryland, there is still, there is no, this is an open question of law. There is no clarity about who's, or there is, there's frustrating lack of clarity about like whose jurisdiction that falls under. I mean, this is something where, John, even you, I'm going to link this in the show notes because you wrote this fantastic piece about website accessibility that speaks to the larger, broader point. We're having issues right now. Like we're talking about this in the context of the third party cookie ban. Regulators are concerned about it, but regulators and legislators. So regulators, for example, a regulator is the FTC, right? The Federal Trade Commission. A legislator is like someone in Congress. So I just want people to be clear when I say regulator versus legislator or I smush them together. That, those are the things I'm talking about. Regulators and legislators are struggling across the board to understand how to create laws, govern the ungovernability of cyberspace. So in your piece about website accessibility, people don't even know how to, how to like do that. How do you legally define what makes a website accessible? How accountable should a small business be? What are the rights of everybody involved? Now, we're starting to get some more guidelines in place, but that's one piece of it. Or if you're just looking at what happened last week, last week, the Federal Trade Commission, along with more than 40 states attorney generals, were um, 
trying to go after Facebook for their monopoly practices. And it all got tossed out by federal judge saying like, I'm sorry, I kind of see your point, but you failed to establish a legitimate monopoly. And also they no longer have standing to go back and say, hey, Instagram and WhatsApp need to be their own businesses. So like, there's this whole mess. They're also going after Google for anti, like they're saying it, like their partnerships are anti-competitive. Like it's just a mess. Nobody knows what to do with what's happening online. And obviously that's just America and nobody lives in, in only a country anymore. So you, you think do. about your, your accessing a website that's from India or from, you know, from anywhere else, it's, it's complicated. And so Google has has punted this implementation. Uh, I, I love that. I think that was your your word from your headline, punted, which is great. Um, this implementation date, so that there can be more preparation. Regulators in the UK aren't happy. Speaking to your global point, so the, so the language they used was, well, we want to, we want. They're like, we're just going to adjust the timeline, but also we've done all this work already, but we're going to adjust the timeline for more quote responsible planning. And then you dig a little deeper. It's like, so there's this particular regulatory body in the UK specifically called the CMA. And they're like, no, you need to give us more. So really what it is, is it's a regulatory issue. Yeah. We have this big, beautiful, bold idea about an open, more private web. And as a consumer, I love that. But like this, this is something where maybe we need to devote an entire episode to this. I have very big problems with how people think data is used. I think that there has to be a finer line drawn between how do we balance the needs and uh, the privacy needs and rights, quite frankly, of people surfing the web. And also like, like we need to stop demonizing data, demonizing the desire to understand. Like the, the microcosm of this is that, like here's another issue. I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago. Apple Mail is basically making it with the rollout, I think of iOS 15 or 14, it's whichever one is rolling out this fall. Um, they're making it so that people can opt out of being tracked at all. And Apple Mail is like, it's kind of like Google Chrome. It sounds like, you know that a lot of people use it, but you really don't know how many use it. And like Apple Mail is the, one of the most dominant email providers. So what that means is come this fall, for example, with my email newsletter, the latest I won't know if someone's using Apple Mail, whether they opened it, like whether or not they clicked it. I won't even know if they opened it. Huh. And so interesting. Yeah. So that's a problem because that I've made, you know, this I've made massive changes to that email newsletter based on how people interact with it. Yeah. Because I'm trying to create a better product. I'm not trying to spy. Right. And that's, you know, that's so interesting. I remember it's like in social media, if you, if you, if you up your privacy settings so that you are not tracked at all, you're still gonna see the same number of ads. Mm -hmm. You're just gonna see ads that have no relevance to you. So you know. they're gonna feel more intrusive and that's what's gonna suck about it. Like there's a huge difference between what people say they want and what they end up wanting in reality. A small version of this is everybody says they like newsletters, going back to that example that have images, they're prettier, they're more engaging. They think visuals will naturally make them more engaged. We did a beta test twice, each a 30-day test, where we A-B tested the latest with images for featured images for articles and featured images without, or, in, or no featured images in it. Uh, every single time, no contest. 
way more interaction with a newsletter that wasn't super designy. That was just like, here's the headline. Here's what you need to know. Here's the link to it. It mm. was, it, but people will say that. People will say they want something more designed. They also gave us a bunch of feedback. And this is, if we want to get super radically candid, we actually took the newsletter from three days a week to five days a week because we were publishing way more often. We got a lot of feedback that people wanted more Impact Plus stuff, uh, that they wanted to hear from other people, yada, yada. It tanked. We literally watched click-through rates just like plummet, like into the basement. Like it was bad. And the minute we switched it back to what people had before, everything goes right back up. Everybody's happy. Like, it's just so funny to me. And that's where it's like, I get so anxious about this whole conversation around what are we going to allow marketers and advertisers to know about the behavior of their users? Because it's not just one of the lines I read in some article somewhere. And I can't, the thing is, it's such an agnostic idea. I don't remember what research it was for. It was either for Apple mail or for the the cookie ban or whatever it was. Somebody basically said marketers and advertisers are really just more after the bottom line when it comes to using this data. And it's like, yeah, some people are buttheads. Yes. Yes, they are. But a lot of us are using that data to genuinely create a better product. And the more you put blinders on me, the more I'm going to start making assumptions based on what I think should be rather than what my buyers actually really want. Yeah. Obviously this is a huge topic uh, and, and so interesting to discuss. But that's we're only, we're only scratching, we're only scratching the surface, but I do yeah. want to jump, jump forward to I don't know if it's the bigger news. It, it feels a little bit like maybe equally big news. Um, but you also pre- produce, produced, well, excuse me, produced two pieces about this dual core update that you mentioned before that rather than just doing one core update, it kind of, they did something in June and then something in July. Can you give us a, a broad overview of, well, give us a broad overview. Yeah, I mean, sure. So here's the thing about Google Core updates. On the one hand, I'm like many SEO people out there who are just fundamentally irritated when Google announces news that they then say is not news and then they refuse to tell us what they're doing. Like it just drives me absolutely bonkers. But the thing is, is, and and I'm gonna be perfectly honest. The reality is we all have trust issues right now with Google. And I, I want to explain why. Normally, they what they say is true. They roll out countless core updates a year. And I want to be very clear about what we say a core update is. So that way, when you start seeing core updates in the headlines, you know what it means. A core update is usually a series of tweaks to the algorithm that once again, come back to that other goal, right? So we spent the first part of this conversation talking about their big goal of an open, more private web, equity, blah, 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 blah. And now we're talking about the other side, right? Serving up more relevant results that are more tied to the intent of a query. And that is a bunch of techno speak for when you sit down at Google and you are like, how do I make spaghetti and meatballs? You get like recipes and not like, here's the history of the noodle. Like it's to make sure that you are getting what you actually want. So that's what these updates are all about. They happen all the time. But the problem is that Google, hmm, Google, 
they, you're seeing all of my faces, John. I wish other people could see this. They, so this is what they've done since April. In April, they did a product reviews update, um, which was essentially like making reviews more transparent, making it easier for people to manage. Then there was a June core update of dubious origin and understanding. And so in June, what they said was, hey, so we're rolling out a core update right now over the next two weeks. Um, don't worry about it. Um, we're just like tweaking stuff. Nothing to um, see here. Nothing to see. It's fine. Here's an article. We've written about it before. Um, only people who care about SEO, by the way, will notice impacts. So most people won't notice it, but the people who care the most obviously will notice. Um, uh, they won't tell you what's in it. And then this is where it gets wild. They say, oh, and also not all of the updates that we're not going to tell you about are ready. So half of it's going to roll out in June. And then they said this, people will not see substantial shifts. However, people may see shifts up or down that will then be reversed in July. Or maybe not. We don't know. I like to keep you guessing. Factors? Industry? Uh, like location? You know, really, really substantive details. Considering they're a company that is their mission is to organize the world's information. They sound like a really bad boyfriend who's like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of interested in that, but maybe not. Like maybe, I don't know. I don't like that at all, but whatever, you know. I mean, here's where it gets tricky. On the one hand, I totally agree with you, right? He's also like the guy where it's like, he always wants to be asked where to go to dinner, but then he's never gonna decide. And you're just like, oh my God. I'm going to die here. I'm going to die here of starvation. I'm going to get my beach body because I will be starving and dead. Um, on the other hand, though, I can't believe I'm going to say this. And I think it's because I'm the daughter of a lobbyist and, and like two lawyers. I also kind of get it. The rules and changes they make. I mean, remember when we were talking about the other part of this conversation, see, it all connects together. What they do impacts millions or trillions of websites. I literally do not know. They, the changes they make impact such a huge, like unfathomable number of websites. There's no statement that they can make that will ever be absolute. It's not possible. So it sounds like they're talking out of their two sides of their mouths, right? It sounds like I get infuriated when they're like, literally like, well, the only people who really care and need to know this information are the ones who will be impacted, but don't worry, it's not a big deal. The reality is, is we're actually a pretty small percentage. We are a loud mouthy percentage, but we are not the large vast majority of websites out there. We're just not. Yeah. So I think that's the thing you got to keep in mind here. When you look at these core updates, I'm going to be perfectly honest, guys. I'm going to continue to write these these uh, these analyses, and it, it's so funny. I was telling John before we got started recording today. Um, I, I feel like I've been so candid about all the things that we've made changes to, like emails and stuff. I'll be honest about this too. Um, we have a vertical of our content strategy that's just devoted to contextualizing news that happens in in marketing and sales in the digital space. For a long time, we were trying to hire a writer for it. And so of course, in the meantime, 
uh, I took it over. And I actually like now having it. In fact, John, you're going to get a laugh out of this. I was talking with Vin, our, uh, our VP over here of the Impact Plus business unit. And I said, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I want to keep news reactions after we had finally potentially found someone to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, I want to keep it because I have come to realize the thing that pisses me off the most. And I said it at the start of this is that there is no way, like nobody goes out of their way to just demystify this for the business leader who is literally just like, I just want to know how to get traffic and leads and sales like from my website. Like that's all I want to know. And the digital marketer who is like tirelessly creating content that's trying to rank against keywords and they don't understand these things. I'm going to continue to write these initial things every time they come out because sometimes there are things called massive core algorithm updates. Those usually get long runways for us to understand, you know, what's going on, what the implications are going to be. And I know we're going to touch on that here in a few minutes. The thing you need to understand about core updates is the same thing I actually ended up saying about the privacy update as well. You need to improve your literacy so you understand what these updates mean. Even if you never know what they are, you have to understand that they're coming. So that way, if your boss comes to you and says, why is our traffic like volatile? Why, Why is it up and down? There's a core update. They usually take a few weeks to stabilize and it's all about making sure the most relevant content is surfaced. So the two things people I always recommend look at, whether it's data privacy or this, focus on creating great content that answers your ideal buyer's most pressing questions and make sure your page experience is buttoned up. Now the page experience update is a separate thing, but that's always something being targeted in these core algorithm updates. And by page experience, I mean, when somebody lands on your website to read the answer to the question they were looking for, does your website annoy the piss out of them? Does it take too long to load? Does it have all of these different things going on? And that's why we have trust issues because these pair of updates were nested in, let's see, the product reviews update in April. There was a spam update that happened like sometime in June. Then there was an unconfirmed core algorithm update that happened like on the very last day of the month, people saw their like website traffic spiking all over the place, which is a weird time for it to spike because that's the holidays when typically you see it dropping off. And then we had this core update. And then on top of that, we had this page experience update that they have been talking about since last November that got pushed out four times that they kept saying was, it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal, but it's not a big deal. It's a mess. It's just a big mess. But the bottom line of every story is that if you want to make sure that you're not at the whim of Google every single time, I mean, you're going to have to face it, whether you have something like the page experience update that's planned or the core updates that just pop up, right? If you're focusing on creating that relevant content and making sure your website experience is as amazing as possible across mobile and desktop, you're going to be okay. So it feels a little bit like this is a a two-headed monster. And on one side, I feel like I can attack the quality content. I can write in the language of my buyers. I can make sure that my images are the right size and those sorts of things. But then that other side might feel less familiar to our audience. Things like page speed, page structure, those yeah. things that feel more like technical SEO. So how do you how do you go after that one? By thinking differently. I mean, it, it, and accepting the fact that some level of literacy here is required. So when we were really first getting into inbound marketing, 
you know, inbound marketing has been around for a while, right? Like HubSpot did not invent inbound. They Now HubSpot did help usher it in, provide the tools and the technology to make it more feasible, more realistic, um, you know, all of those different things. But the reality is, is that 10 years ago when we were all really, you know, when it was like new and hot and we were figuring it out, there were two things that people need to keep in mind. Number one, Google and the way it indexed and mapped our content out was much more rudimentary. So you could just optimize for the right keywords, maybe get aggressive and do what's called keyword stuffing, where you're just like throwing keywords in to get it to the top of the pile. Um, And you could eke it out there. You could have content strategies that were just like lists of keywords. And you're like, okay, I'm going to create 50 blog articles off of these 50 disparate, but maybe somehow kind of related keywords. Um, You could have pop-ups. You could have things like that, right? And your content would still win out. And then over the past 10 years, they've rolled out updates like, so whenever they do big core updates, they have names, they have friendly names like Panda. Panda sounds adorable. Google rolled out the Panda update in 2011. And guess what that did? That killed keyword stuffing forever. It it invented something called a quality score. Quality scores are used for website pages to help them determine where they rank and also how well they do in terms of like Google ads and stuff like that. And that killed keyword stuffing. So that went away. And then in 2013, they had something called the hummingbird update. Again, adorable, so cute, amazing. And it actually, (laughs) yes, flapping wings down, just like that. Um, And then what was adorable and amazing about that update is it actually solved a big problem, which was if I were to say the words cars and automobiles, John, as a human being, you would know those two are the same thing or at least related. Yeah. Google couldn't tell that you had to be very literal and explicit in your keyword optimization on your pages. And if you wanted to be found for cars and automobiles, you would have to put those up there. That's a very basic version uh, of what I'm talking about here. But the 2013 update addressed that with something called semantic search, which helped, which was, which was an update to their core algorithm that made it easier for them in their words to understand the true intent of someone's search query like what they were really looking for. Um, And also understanding the relationships between words and terms. And that was a huge update. Now we're moving into this thing where, well, it's, it's not just, you know, don't keyword stuff, related keywords, yada, yada. They rolled out something called rank brain and they say it was in 2015, but that's only when they confirmed its existence. And that's when their core algorithm went from, basic, static, needs to be updated all the time to AI. So this is a this is an artificial intelligence powered core algorithm from Google, right? And it learns and it learns quickly, but it also maps content differently. Meaning in order to tell whether or not a website page is the most relevant piece of content to serve up in a, in a search in a search result, It doesn't just take a look at the page. It tries to understand, well, what is this website really about, right? Like maybe some website that sells shoes wrote an article called what is inbound marketing, but isn't an article of the same title from a website like HubSpot or Impact probably more relevant? Yes, because it understands what we're about. So it's about this time that Google doesn't just start caring about, oh, they're writing about this article on this keyword and it now understands that they're related. It now wants to understand what websites are about. 
And that's where we get to something called site structure. So what we're trying to get to here, it is, it's not just a two-headed monster here, it's a three-headed monster, right? In order to get your content to rank, you can't just create the content. You have to have that content on a website that's well-organized so Google can understand what your website is about. That's why things like pillar content are so important. There's a whole other topic. I'll link my course to it on Impact Plus in the show notes. But essentially, it is a content architecture that allows Google to see very clearly you're not just a disparate patchwork of articles about email and social media, whatever you're about, inbound marketing. The page experience piece of it is, okay, so you have your content and let's say your site structure is great you now need to understand that your page experience is an equal part of this puzzle. So going back to the top of this answer, John, the reason, the way you handle it is you just accept that search has changed. You accept that in order to get the rankings you're looking for that are sustainable in the long term, that aren't those quick wins that then somehow drop out of the top 10 or the or the even the first couple of pages, you have to understand that Google isn't just looking at your content anymore. They're looking at your website experience. They're looking at how your content is organized. They're looking at how well you protect the privacy of your users. Like that's how these things are all connected. So you start by becoming more literate, by going out of your way to look. And it's not hard. It's not hard. Just have a responsive website. And if you don't have one, I regret to inform you, you need to invest in one. Like you have to start making these changes. You can't have a website from 2015 that you expect to win in 2021 and 2022. You can't. You just can't. You've been on the hot seat giving us so much insight and information, but I'm going to keep you there for one more minute okay. and ask you to teach us something that probably doesn't have anything to do with SEO. Actually, no, I've decided I'm going to keep the train going. So it actually ties into that last question, John, how do you get your head around page experience when it's something you haven't really thought about before? So I want to teach everybody about something that they probably already have access to. Now, most business website owners I know have Google Analytics on their website. If you don't, go at it. I'll wait. Fantastic. If you've had Google Analytics on your website for any amount of time, you're gonna have enough data in there already. If you're just adding it, you're gonna wanna wait about 30 days. But anyway, this is still relevant to everybody. As part of this whole page experience thing, and this is something we didn't really get to touch upon, but here's like the, the 30 second elevator pitch. In addition to core algorithm updates, Google rolled out a thing that said, we are now going to be taking certain parts of your page experience. So like how quickly it loads, how many pop-ups you have on there, whether like if somebody pushes a button, it actually does the thing it's supposed to do, how stable the website is, all those little things. Those are now gonna to contribute to how well your content ranks. They're first starting it on mobile. 
desktop is going to follow at a later time. I would say sometime probably next year. But over the course of this summer, these types of things, especially on mobile, are going to be rolling out. However, Google has created something to make it a little bit easier for you to get started if you haven't really thought about this. So you can look at something called Core Web Vitals, which is a whole thing with lots of jargon. And there's now something called the Page Performance Report. You can find it in Google. You can find it in your Google Search Console, which is what you have when you have Google Analytics and all of that fun stuff on your website. And basically it will say things like, hey, guess what? Good news. 74.3% of the pages on your website have a good page experience. And it'll tell you little things about like, you don't have any security issues or you do have security issues. Um, you know, hey, these are the pages that have problems. This is what you can do to fix them. So a good place to start is there. And that was what my learning center is today is that, you know, we spent a lot of time, John, today talk or on this podcast talking about like the sausage, right? How do we make the content sausage? This is now part of how that content sausage gets made. You have to understand what the website experience is like for your users, because you can have the best article in the world, but if it's not stable. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It takes forever to load. They're never going to see it or they're going to leave. They're going to get irritated all that work is going to be for nothing. So this is a great place to start because it'll tell you immediately as soon as you log on, if you've already had this data for some time, good, most of your website is fine. Ugh, most of your website isn't fine. Let's dig into the details, start looking. It'll start telling you what to do. So that's my learning corner. Perfect. Page experience or page performance report. If you struggle to find it, literally Google it. There's a link to it. You'll be fine. So John, I'm done hearing myself talk. And you always have such good reading things. Mine are always like, I found this funny article about farts. So what are you reading this week? I'll try to live up. I actually just finished this, so I'm not reading it anymore. But I just finished a book called Brooklyn by Calm Tobin, who's an Irish writer. And uh, it is, it's just beautiful and lovely and just like a, an amazing reading experience. It's a sort of coming of age and immigrant story of this young woman who moves from a small town in Ireland to Brooklyn, New York in like the late forties post-war period. And, um, you know, leaves her family behind for opportunity and then is kind of like a lot of, uh, like a lot of people who move from one place to another, she's kind of twice marginalized where she's doesn't totally fit in in Brooklyn. And then she has to go home to Ireland and she doesn't really fit in there either. Uh, and she is this really kind of interesting heroine and the book is just, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's stunning. Um, it's actually, and I don't do this very often, but it was actually a movie and I saw the movie first, uh, the movie came out maybe in like I think the book is from maybe 2010 or so, and the movie was from 2015, something like that, 2000 somewhere. And uh, both are great. So I saw the movie first and liked it and picked up the book at a used bookstore at some point, and it had sat on my shelf for like a year and went away on a family vacation to Vermont a couple weeks ago and started it and just totally fell in love with it. And it's it's just great. It's just great. It's so pleasant. Um, it's, you know, I think so often, I don't know, fiction can be like pulled by melodrama or, or just, I don't know, bombast. And this feels really 
realistic. It feels really human and and just just beautiful. So Brooklyn, and I'll try to say his name right, Calm Tobin, I believe. It's, it's like Irish with all sorts of accent marks and everything like that. So um, look it up. We'll link to it and pick it up. That's amazing. You know what I'm going to start reading today, John? I can't believe I'm going to even admit this out loud because I've been reading a lot of big books recently. I'm reading Midnight Sun, the new Twilight book, and we're just going to accept it and move on. I no won't judgment be reading quarter next week, I promise. No judgment. No, don't judge. You should judge. I should be judged <laughs> harshly. Yes, trust me with all of this SEO goodness. Also reading Twilight. It's fine. It's fine. It's beach read. It's summer. It always amuses me. And I'm going to say this is the final note before we leave. Every year or so, I decide, like, I just need a break from reality. And so I'll rewatch the Twilight series, which it was already terrible to begin with. And each movie just gets worse. But I've noticed in recent years, like, in that last movie, the cast is stacked. Like, Rami Malek is in that. Like, uh, Michael Sheen, who's, like, this incredible British actor, is, like, the big bad guy. Like, they're just, it's such incredibly stacked casting. And it's just, like, I look at this, I'm like, what? What are you all doing here? Did you get tricked? Why are you here? So, anyway, I just thought that was funny. Okay, so... All right. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go stick my brain in cold water and like try to relax because <laughs> as someone who likes to talk that much, that was even a lot for me. But to everybody else, uh, we'll talk to you the next episode. I have no idea what we're going to be talking about. That was going to be exciting. It's a mystery. I think we have a guest next time. Do we? Oh, that's... <gasps> I do know what we're talking about. Ooh. Oh, this is going to be a really good topic. You definitely want to be there. A hundred percent. All right. Bye, guys. Adios.